Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for the freedom that we have to come to your house to worship you today. And not just the freedom to worship you, but the freedom from sin to be able to worship you. That we've been made your friends and your children that instead of being at enmity with you and having your wrath abiding on us, that we have peace with you because of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have done all the work, that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We thank you, Lord, that we not only have peace with you, but we have access into the fullness of your grace in which we stand. We're not merely on the outskirts of the camp, uh, safe from the wolves beyond the borders of the fence, Lord, where we have full privilege of adoption as your children. And so we pray that as we look at this uh, formative passage in Paul's letter and in, in the Christian faith, that we would think well about how we should respond to all the circumstances that you bring into our lives through your providential will. We ask that you would help us to rejoice in our suffering, that we would rejoice in our hope and the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Would you bless us now with Christian fellowship and unity, unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace? Would you bless us, Lord, with quiet minds and calm hearts that we might apprehend what is your mercy towards us in Christ Jesus? Would you soften the soil of our hearts that we might be convicted of sin where appropriate? And would you strengthen our spiritual spines by your Spirit's presence in our lives that we might walk uprightly in this present wicked age, that we might do the good works that you've prepared, that we should walk in them, that others might see them and give you glory, that we might live a manner fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in our knowledge of God, that we might be worthy of the gospel to which we've been called and the precious blood of him who called us to it. Would you bless our hour now in Sunday school, Lord, we pray, and bring those who are not yet here safely to church. Uh, be with our covenant children as they surround us in various classrooms. We ask that you would use the Sunday school teachers who have put countless hours of preparation into leading their little hearts heavenward uh, that those children might receive the, the seeds of the gospel as they're presented to them week in and week out, that we might be a church not of um, disconnected demographics, but intergenerational fellowship in the spirit and love for one another. And Lord, we ask that you would do all this for Christ's glory and for our good, and that the world might be transformed uh, through us, your people. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Sorry, I didn't realize there was such a waiting crowd. You are free to walk in while I'm praying. <clears throat> so we are, we are making our big transition now in the book of Romans. Obviously, uh, other men have been teaching, the other elders. It's almost, I mean... I'm tempted to rename this Sunday School series, Romans, as taught by Marshall Clement. Uh, Marshall loves this book and has volunteered to fill in so many gaps, which I could not be more thankful for, uh, and he's done a fantastic job. But I have the distinct privilege of coming to this transitional passage, <coughs> excuse me, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where we have peace with God. Um, I'm going to explain here in a moment why we're calling this a transitional passage from 4 to 5, really from 1 through 4 to 5 through 8, and then there'll be another major transition at 9, and then another major transition at 12, if we were to break the book up that way. Um, when we get to chapters 9 through 11, which will be next year, which I'm sure many of you are eagerly anticipating as they relate to uh, God's relationship with the people of Israel, and how do we interpret all those things, we're going to set the stage for that with a uh, sort of a 
35,000-foot overview of those three chapters, and then we'll do what we've been doing, which is to spend two weeks per chapter. And so recognizing that there's just not enough time, as you well know, Martin Lloyd-Jones spent, what was it, nine, ten years preaching through this in his Friday evening sermon series, uh, and we just didn't think that would be appropriate for Sunday school. So... You can buy, by the way, I think the Banner of Truth Christmas sale is now live, so if you can find the Lloyd-Jones series of sermons on uh, Romans, you can purchase them. I get no kickbacks from Banner of Truth. (laughs) Let me read this text. It is, there's so many good texts in Scripture, and I hesitate to do this. It's like having 66 children. Um, This is... This is one of the best passages in the whole Bible. I'm going to try to refrain from descending into preaching here as we go through this. Let me read uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Let's pay attention to how we hear it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, or we boast, it says, in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice or we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, We also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Thus sends the reading of God's word. Well, we're referring to this passage as a sort of transitional text in Romans. We're moving from the opening chapters and all that they deal with uh, concerning the depravity of man and and the... um, um, equity of God's judgment to all people and the need for justification and the righteousness that's received by faith. The great example, therefore, being Abraham being justified by faith in chapter 4. And now we come to chapter 5. We're going to get here in a moment to this uh, therefore word. Uh, But really what we have here is a change in rhetoric. Paul's rhetorical bridge here, one person calls it. There's been a focus shift uh, from the I, you, them to the we, us in these last chapters. He's, he's really leaning into the corporate dimension of our salvation. Uh, not only that, there's a personal dimension of salvation. So rather than it being uh, historical, uh, you know, Abraham was justified by faith, or the uh, broad they, all of mankind out there. Now it's very personal. We have peace with God. We have reconciliation with God. We have hope because of the blood of Christ. And so he's shifting his focus a bit here uh, from this I, you, them to the we, us dimension. So there's a change that way in chapter 5 as we move on. Uh, But there's also a change in tone and so what, what Paul starts to do here is he starts to speak, especially in this passage, these 11 verses, in the perfect tense 
Uh, everything that he says is a completed idea. It's a, it's a, it's a done deal. It's a, a, you can take it to the bank sort of reality. And look at, in your notes with me at all of these perfect tense verbs that Paul uses, nine of them here just in these 11 verses. These are, well, I guess eight. These are ours now. These are not just things that will be true These are true now. They're perfect tense. They're done. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. Now, perhaps you're aware that there is a a manuscript uh, debate over whether or not Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified with peace, or excuse me, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, or he says, be at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I won't get into all of the details of that, um, but the strongest evidence supports the notion that he says we have, perfect tense, completed peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of the main reasons for that uh, conclusion is the fact that that's the way he speaks everywhere else in this text. Uh, And it would be unique if he says... Keep your peace with God uh, in opposition to all of these other perfect tense verbs. The other thing, this is very technical, but there's a, a, a manuscript fragment that has a hole in it right where this word is written, and it's only at the end of the word where it would change it from the one to the other. And, and scholars whose lives are spent hunched over magnifying glasses looking at pieces of papyrus from hundreds and thousands of years ago, not hundreds of thousands of years ago, you understand, uh, but from very long ago, they are in agreement that the two letters needed to change this to be at peace with God would not fit in the space that's missing. And so even the absence of conclusive evidence still seems to suggest that this is the best way, the way our ESV translation has landed it. And it fits with everything else that Paul's saying here. So back to our notes here, uh, the change in tone, the perfect tense. Think about this for a moment. This is not a promise. Uh, uh, Romans 5.1 is not a promise. Romans 5.1 is a fact It's yours. It's done. We have, perfect tense, peace with God. We have access to grace. That's not that you're promised that as you grow as a Christian, you'll gain more and more access to God's grace. That's not how sanctification works. It's not that as you become more Christ-like, you're granted more privilege to become more Christ-like. You have now access to all of God's grace. And in that grace, you hear is another perfect tense verb. You stand. You are firmly planted. You're rooted and grounded there. You are in his grace. Isn't that amazing? The picture that Paul is painting here is not one of a, of a kiddie pool full of grace over there that eventually you'll be able to get to. It's the idea that there is an ocean of God's grace, a bottomless, shoreless ocean of God's grace, and you are in it. Now, all of God's grace is ours this is, this is a, a strange one to consider. We rejoice, we boast in hope of the glory of God. Perfect tense. But he says this idea of boasting three times, so let's look at them together. 5-2, we boast in hope. 5-3, we boast in our sufferings. Uh, 5-11, we boast in God. And there's a bit of a flow to those, isn't there? We boast in hope because we know that God's, that our hope of God's glory being revealed in our lives will certainly come to pass, which means we're able to boast in our sufferings because they make us more like Christ. And ultimately, our boast is in God because our justification is through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have no reason to boast in anything else. I think one of the most unfortunate mischaracterizations, I can't say that word, uh, about the Reformed world is that we are sort of braggadocious and, and um, uh, you know, lack humility because of this idea of election, which my intention is not to discuss election, but rather to say that the Reformed church subscribes to the doctrine of election as it's taught in Scripture. But that doesn't create any cause for boasting. Rather, our boasting is only in God because he's the one that justifies us. He's the one that saves us. There's nothing for us to boast in. We're the ones that are God's enemies. We were weak. We were ungodly. We were dead in our sins. There's nothing to boast about. There's only one thing to boast about, and that's God. And because we can boast in God, we can boast in hope. And because we can boast in hope, we can boast in suffering. And so he's changing now this tone. By the way, this is important to remember when you're in the midst of affliction then, isn't it? In the midst of affliction, you have to remember that Paul, well, Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to use the perfect tense verb when he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's incredible. There's an expectation for the Christian. Paul brings this up later in 1 Thessalonians, speaking of those who are grieved over the loss of those who have gone on to glory before us. And he says, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. We have hope because of God, because of peace, because of reconciliation. And so we don't grieve like that. Rather, we rejoice in our afflictions because we know what God has designed them to produce in us. And he gives us a list here. It produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Wait, I thought we already had hope. It's this sort of um, cyclical idea that's built into the Christian life that the more you have hope, the more you're equipped to suffer, and the more that you suffer, the more you're able to endure more, and the more you endure, the more character you have to hope more, so the more equipped you are to suffer, which enables you to endure more, and then you endure more because you have hope, and then you have hope and you're able to suffer. Do you see how it's designed that way? God has built into our Christian lives the ability and capacity because of the grace in which we have access, in which we stand, to rejoice in our suffering. But if you approach suffering like a firefighter running into a building and then putting his uniform on, you're going to have a really difficult time in seasons of suffering. But that's not the way that they do it. They put their uniform on at the firehouse, and then they get in the truck, and they have the the character and the hope to go into the trial inside the building. Dave, did you raise your hand? I'm sorry. I thought I saw a hand go up. Okay. Uh, number eight here in verse five, we are unashamed. I know it doesn't say that in the ESV, but it does say, and hope does not put us to shame. That does not put us to shame. Uh, we are not ashamed. We're unashamed. Now, in the midst of our suffering. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And then lastly, in 5.8, God demonstrates, perfect tense, he has demonstrated his love for us, or God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died. So Paul is, is reminding us in this transitional passage of all these things that are absolutely true for the Christian. They're absolutely true, without question, unequivocally true, that we have now peace with God, access to grace, we stand in it, we rejoice in hope and suffering and in God himself. We're unashamed even when we suffer, even when things go wrong for us. We don't hang our heads in shame because we know who produces in us hope because his love is already in us and his spirit is as well. And all of these things are undergirded by the one perfect tense that God has done. He's shown us his love. It's already done. He's shown us his love on the cross. And that's interesting that God's love has been perfectly demonstrated on the cross. There's a, a sort of, I think it's a sad commentary on our post-enlightenment <laughs> 
um, need for constant reminders of God's love in new and fresh ways, uh, we're very much like Gideon. Oh, Lord, give me a little bit of wet fleece this morning just to remind me that you're still there. Uh, give me a little bit. Do something today. Lord, if, and don't lie. How many of you have driving down the road, uh, Lord, if the light's red, then I know that this is going to happen. Um, <laughs> And we think like that sometimes, don't we? And we act like we need little signs from God. Now, don't get me wrong. God offers us signs. He really does. Do you know what one of the most faithful signs of God's love for us is? The rainbow's one. That's, his, that's a promise. Yeah, the sunrise. Every day the sun comes up. And every evening it goes down. And that's a testimony to God's faithfulness. That's a testimony to God's faithfulness. He doesn't cease to superintend the universe, the whole universe, how can we worry that he might cease to superintend our lives? So God does give us signs, but the greatest, the singular, the perfect tense completed sign of God's love for us is the cross. He demonstrated his love for us in Jesus. And so we don't need repeated reminders outside of God's word and the gospel in order to have hope, in order to have peace, in order to have endurance, because God has already demonstrated his love for us. John reflects on this, I think, in 1 John, especially in chapter 3, doesn't he? Uh Kevin. It's all. Thank you. So, my question is: is is since you were talking about post enlightenment, and I'm I'm seeing this in my own family conversations, I'll put it that way, is that they don't see the Bible and and sometimes as a promise directly for them, because they see the world explain all these things in a rubric and a knowledge base, and they haven't gone back to God. Just said, "I you will not be ashamed." You are, what was the thing earlier? You will have peace. That's a perfect tense. And that's meant to be for your heart, not just for your head. Does well, that make sense? It, it does. And I, Kevin, I appreciate the question. I think that there's, we want to make sure that we don't um, throw out necessarily the intellectual baby with the emotional bathwater. And, and you're not suggesting that we do that. But there, there's a sense in which the Bible repeatedly speaks to the mind, to be renewed in the thinking of our mind, to increase in our knowledge of God. And so we don't want to, and you're not, again, you're not saying this, we want to be careful that we don't dismiss the need to know that what we feel is true. And we have to have that. But we don't want to miss the fact that we need to experimentally, as Dr. Curry put it last week, experientially know in that intimate sense who God is in light of what we ascend to intellectually. So there's a big difference. Many of you perhaps know that Japan is a country and maybe have watched a bunch of uh, samurai movies where the voices don't line up with the moving of the mouth and so forth. And so you have some... uh, intellectual knowledge of the culture, right? And others, I lived in Japan for a year and a half. And so there's an experimental familiarity and knowledge of the culture and the people that comes along with that sort of life. And, and the Christian life is both of those things. Uh, there's a whole class of Christian people. And uh, again, I think Dr. Curry said this last week, we may be guilty uh, in the Reformed world of loving the truth of our doctrine, more than the God of our doctrine. Uh, And so it's interesting. Uh, My hope is that, um, given the right circumstances, we're going to be getting into Exodus after the new year in evening worship. But look at Exodus chapter 2 with me. I'm just going to share this now. You'll get the sneak preview of what... Did I just say Romans 5 was my favorite passage in the Bible? (laughs) In Roman, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 2, in verse 23 
24 and 25 are some of the most tender words in all of the Old Testament. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That word knew there is the Hebrew word yada, which is the same word used in Genesis chapter 4 to describe Adam and Eve's relationship that resulted in a child. God knows us, and the way that we're meant to know God is far more than uh, there is a country on the other side of the world that is called Japan, and far more like the, there is a person that I love and it's called my spouse. And that's the way we should love God, Kevin, uh, to your question. Um, so we don't want to miss the one for the other, uh, but I think there's, there's a, a balance to be struck in the both of them. Because on the one side, you have this sort of uh, you know, frozen, chosen, reformed caricature of eggheads who love Herman Bavink and nobody else, not even, their, not even people that live near them. Uh, and then on the other side, you have this sort of what we might call like squishy evangelicalism that loves to love, but couldn't, couldn't you know, choose the right doctrine out of a lineup of three options. And we want to be careful that we don't end up there because then love transforms to affirming uh, rather than confronting when sometimes it needs to be the latter rather than the former. Okay. This is a transitional passage because of the way that it summarizes so much of what's come before. I want to, I want to move quickly here uh, for the sake of our time. If you look at the notes there, I include a number of cross-references from the previous four chapters that are all uh, sort of recapitulated here in verses 1 through 11. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Having been justified, excuse me, by his blood, Christ died for the ungodly. And so we see these old themes that the elders have done such a fantastic job of highlighting over the last couple of months, all being shifted uh, here in chapters or verses 1 through 11, into the way that God has worked those themes into the lives of his people. Perfect tense. There's promises of justification. There's ideas about faith. There's concepts of peace. And there's references to the ungodly. But now, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, all of those things are for us particularly and perfectly. Again, this is the therefore idea. You guys know the phrase. It's really silly, but it's helpful. When you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for. And so you can't just jump into chapter 5. Paul did not, like, break his letter here and write, you know, part 5. This is an addition. Uh, it's an editorial. Uh, um, and so sometimes it doesn't help very well. Uh, you know, if you were to preach this, most people, myself included, would preach chapter 4, verses 13 through 25, and then chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 or 1 through 11. But really, 14, or excuse me, 4, 13 through 5, 11 is a unit. Because therefore means that I'm about to wrap up all the stuff that I just said to you in the last paragraph. And so because of all this, because of, especially because of the dependence upon faith and the promise of God's grace, we avoid wrath and we have hope in justification. Uh, therefore, because of those things, we've been justified by faith. Just like Abraham, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and justified, or excuse me, raised for our justification. And because he was raised... We have peace. And so that transition here is pretty significant. I love, look at this with me. Um, I, I didn't put the references there, but point three, not only that and more than that. Verse three, if I were to just give you, if the Bible only contained Romans 5, 1 and 2, we would have enough to worship forever. 
since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's enough. And then Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in suffering, so on and so forth and so on and so forth. And then he gets all the way down to verse 11. By the way, in between verses 3 and 11, we have hope, we have character, we have the Holy Spirit, we have God's love, we have Christ dying, we have God's love again, we have been justified again, we've been saved, we were enemies, we have reconciliation, we'll be saved, and more than that, <laughs> we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of all this, more and more and more, we get to just rejoice in the fact that God's ours because of Jesus. <clears throat> in, in an attempt to be appropriately reverent, we often only think of our relationship with God in terms of his ownership of us. We're his people. That's amazing. But the Bible portrays a two-way relationship that includes our ownership of him. He is our God. That's, that's so much different than just saying we're his people. Again, that's enough. But the Bible says he's ours. We have him because he gave himself to us. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Paul just can't stop declaring the excellencies of the God who saves us. That's the way I think the Christian life should sound. Um, and I'm sure most of us, there are, of course, among us here, even this morning, some who think this way, who write this way, journal this way, talk this way. I believe that if the soundtrack of your heart were to be played out loud, it would sound a lot like this, even if you don't think in these terms. But maybe we should put effort into trying to think in these terms a little bit more, uh, just as Christian men and women and young people. It would help us, I think, in our daily walk with the Lord to be reminded of our relationship with him and all these things that are true now perfectly for us. Uh, and Paul is just overflowing with praise because we've been justified. You know, there's arguments over the word justification. Of course, whole denominations have split over it. The Protestant Reformation was in large measure rooted in this question over justification by faith alone um, which we're going to look at here in just a second. But justification is not a dry doctrine about legalese in, in the Roman world or any other. It, it, those things are part of it, but justification is the means by which we have access to God. And so we ought to spend time thinking about these things. Um, and to go back to Kevin's question from earlier, exercising our minds so that our hearts would be enlarged. There are significant themes, as we've already talked about, um, going through this, this text. Again, it's hard not to descend into, into sort of preaching this passage. Uh, but I want to go through some of the terms that are used just to help us together have some common uh, um, vocabulary uh, that we can hang our thinking on. Uh, as far as what Paul means when he says that these things are ours. Justification, this is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. In other words, uh, when that was said, what was meant was if our doctrine of justification is not Paul's, which, let me just clarify for a second, was Christ's and God's in the Old Testament, uh, if if our doctrine of justification is not Paul's, then we're not the church. Um, we stand in contrast to the Roman Catholic Church here uh, on a couple of, uh, couple of levels. Um, but the idea 
here, and, and we'll read our shorter catechism question here in just a moment, uh, but the idea here is that it is a legal term. God is the judge. He's the one who holds the record of debt. He's the one who meets out justice. Uh, he is the one who is also the offended party and who is taking us to his court. Uh, so it's a legal term because God has the right to pronounce a guilty verdict on all mankind. And we, that's most of chapter one, isn't it? And chapter two of Romans, that God judges with equity. He'll judge all people, Jew and Gentile, whether they have the law or not. And chapter three tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short. And so there's no getting out of this judgment. But justification, according to our shorter catechism, question 33, is an act of God's free grace. So, excuse me. That, that statement that it's an act of God's free grace is an intentional choice of words that puts all of the responsibility of justification on God. He's the one that acts for our justification. It's his free grace, not uh, it's not a payment to us for our righteousness. It's not a payment to us for our works. It's not, it's not our due because we've earned it. Rather, it's God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins, past, present, and future, and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ, not the righteousness of man, not the keeping the sacraments or any of those things, only for Christ's righteousness, imputed to us and received by faith alone. Um, that's it. Faith alone is, is the, the, uh, the means by which our justification is received. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And you understand that idea of imputation being that uh, sort of um, financial language that all that's his gets deposited into our account. Kyle. It, uh, yes. So could, if I was going to visit with a Catholic friend, how would I try to explain or what questions could I ask them about their view of justification as far as you understand? Because they do believe in justification, right? They do believe in justification. Um, I, I suppose, are you asking, Jeff, what do what does the Roman Catholic Church believe about justification? Right. Yep. Yeah. Let let me um, let me push pause on that for now, uh, only because I have a lot of terms I want to go through. I would suggest that if you were talking, so this is one of the most common mistakes uh, that I think a lot of people make when engaging with people from the other side is I want to caution against trying to. I'm not suggesting that you don't try to know what they what they think. But we spend a lot of time trying to live in their camp in order to unpack their argument rather than strengthening our own. And so let's, the starting point is firmly root yourself in the Protestant doctrine of justification, starting with here, larger catechism questions and so forth. There's a whole chapter on the confession. Like those things are, are the starting point. Uh, and then I've got a couple book recommendations maybe we could talk about as far as the, the Roman Catholic one. Yeah, yeah. Good question, though. It's a legitimate question. Um, so justification, Paul is saying we've been justified by faith. And it's obvious that what he means here is both legal, uh, no longer is the wrath of God upon us, we have life and so forth, uh, but we have peace with God. God's the one who's the offended party, and he's the one that works justification for us, which brings peace. That's our second term. Um, Peace, it's that Hebrew idea of shalom. Does anybody know what shalom means? I'll give you a hint. It doesn't mean peace. What is it? Flourishing. That's a good, a good uh, part of the dynamic of, of shalom, what it means. It really conveys the idea of wholeness, completeness, that when there's no gaps, Things feel settled, don't they? Um, when, when there's no uh, breakage in relationship and it's whole, the relationship is whole, that's what peace is meant to be. And so I think I put this um, 
Uh, well, I deal with this in reconciliation rather than in peace, but let's jump down to reconciliation and tie these things together. Uh, number four, we'll come back to hope in a moment. Uh, reconciliation in biblical terms is closely related to peace, uh, and it's the idea of a right relationship. So when we talk about peace in our modern way of thinking about things, peace usually means the absence of open hostility, right? You put your guns down, you put your guns down and go back to your own homes and leave each other alone. That's peace because there's no open hostility, right? And so sometimes this is what we aim for in our houses, isn't it? We aim for quiet. If there's no arguing, things are okay. Or if there is arguing, I'm just going to leave or cold shoulder or whatever is necessary to stop the verbalization of hostility. And so peace in our minds is sort of reduced to the absence of open hostility. But if we combine the ideas of reconciliation and shalom and wholeness with biblical peace and biblical reconciliation, it's not the absence of open hostility. It's the presence of positive relationship. It's more than neutrality. It's love. That's what's missing in Israel. That's missing in a lot of places. That's what's missing on my street. That's what's missing between the people that live on the first floor of my house and the second floor of my house. Um, we have a master on the main, in case you were wondering. Um, it's, that's, that's the way it is in all of our hearts. And frankly, that's the way that it is with God and mankind. It's not just that there's neutrality between God and people who don't love him. There is enmity God, the Bible doesn't call us ignorant to God. It calls us enemies of God in our natural state. And through Jesus Christ, he has worked reconciliation for us, the positive relationship that results from Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit being put into our hearts, that we have a positive relationship with God, not just a neutral relationship with God, and it's not just that the hostilities have ended, but that wholeness has come. And wholeness includes flourishing, like Kevin said, life, joy, the ability to rejoice, hope. Notice how Paul's focus in this text is on God's glory. Even in the midst of dealing with questions of suffering and death and so forth, it's always we rejoice in the glory of God. We rejoice in God. We rejoice in Christ Jesus who's brought us reconciliation with God now. And so it's very uh, relational. It's very, of course, it's dependent upon God. I, I, this is your part B here, subpoint B under reconciliation. The reconciliation and the peace that we have is brought through Jesus Christ. Both of them are. Look, at because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Verse 11, we rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. And so Christ affected all of the work of bringing us into wholeness with God. That's the opposite of the way we think, right? So if Patrick and I were in conflict and it was Patrick's fault, I would sit over here and wait for him to come to me in our sort of selfish approach to relationships. He wronged me come to me and tell me that you were wrong, and then we'll talk about fixing our relationship. What is it? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, but in Matthew it says, if, you know, if someone sinned, you go to him. Well, elsewhere it says, if you're taking your gift to the altar and you realize that someone is offended by you, you go to them. 
And so nobody gets off the hook, by the way. But in God's economy, the way that it works in salvation is that he is the offended party, and yet he's the one that pursues us. If we're going to reflect Christ-like character in our relationships, it means that we need to pursue peace and reconciliation even when we're the ones, especially when we're the ones offended. We go after the people who have hurt us. We don't write them off. We don't treat them like enemies. While we really were God's enemies, Christ died for us. While we were far off, he came after us. While we were dead, he gave us life. And we sit in our comfy chairs waiting for those jerks who have wronged us to come ask for forgiveness. I don't mean to dismiss the need to ask for forgiveness and to repent of sin. But the Bible's way of talking about relational wholeness is the offended party goes after the person who hurt them. And we tend to do the opposite, I think, in our selfishness and in our fear because it costs me something, something intangible to pursue someone who hurt me. And if I can, if I can summarize it this way, and, and you don't have to agree with the language, um, this is kind of ad-libbing, so bear with me. And I've had the flu all week, I already said that. It kind of makes you feel like a chump. I'm the one that got offended. I shouldn't have to give up anymore. I've already lost something. I've already poured out in the hurt. I've already given something up in the hurt. I don't want to have to go back. What if they reject my extension of forgiveness or my pursuit of reconciliation? How much more am I going to be hurt and embarrassed? I'm going to feel like a chump. If I can say this reverently, there's never been a more chump moment than hanging naked on the cross having done no wrong. Right? So can't we, shouldn't we go after people who have hurt us and wronged us and offer forgiveness and pursue wholeness and peace and reconciliation and all these things? This, it shouldn't be counter to our way of thinking. It should be the way that we think. Yes. Can you say that again, Deborah? That would mean even more in the case of those that matter the most to us. If my neighbor offends me, eh, it might be worth going after. It might not. If my husband offends me, it's essential. Or my children, or my good friend. It's essential that we pursue the ones who matter the most to us. And yes, I should go to my neighbor if I need to. But I'm most hesitant to go to those I love because what if they reject that? Right. It will hurt me even more. It's costliest. Yeah. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It, it starts in the house of God. Mm-hmm. Yes, Jake. Jake. Oh, sorry. Phil, I didn't know you had your hand up first. Ladies last. You know how we do it. <laughs> I, I was reading this um, verse from First Peter. Uh, this week, and um, it's in reference to servants, and it says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Um, I looked up that word gracious, um, and it means that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, uh, sweetness, charm, loveliness, and grace of speech. And I was thinking about it 
For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows. Or this is a gracious thing in the sight of God when you suffer um, for good and endure it. And I was mindful also of Acts 5.41. Then they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Yeah. Phyllis? So, in, in terms of conflict and reconciliation, when someone has offended you um, and moving toward them, you're actually moving toward them for their good. And it's not going to feel good. Like you said, you're gonna you're gonna squirm, and it's gonna feel like you're real vulnerable. But this is a mini gospel, and we get to participate in a mini gospel as our as we die to ourselves. We already live with Jesus. What do we have to lose? Yeah. And uh, wait for a resurrection and that will come the reconciliation will come at your cost mm -hmm. for the good of your neighbor and it's just uh, what it's, it's what uh, Jacob said you know God glories in many gospels mm. as his image bearers die and rise again mm. yeah it's and I think what Deborah was saying, too, about the cost of it, you know, the people who have the greatest access to your life have a hold of the most emotional equity in your life. And that's why it costs so much when you go to the person who's already hurt you once. And, uh, you know, we kind of dismiss this colloquially, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Uh, but really, it should be fool me seven times 70. That's okay. Right? Isn't that the way that Jesus encourages Peter when he asks him, how often should I show forgiveness to people? Uh, yeah, that's right. A byproduct of that is that we change because of it. Yeah, you're right. Let me, uh, let me quickly press on to the end here in the remaining couple of minutes that we have. I'm, I'm going to, uh, the idea of hope, uh, I don't think is foreign to most of us. It's confident expectation um, you know, having had the flu this week, I went to bed last night hoping that I would feel better this morning but without any real confidence that I would based on the previous uh, 120 hours uh, worth of experience. Uh, but confident expectation is the hope that we have in Christ. All of these things are ours. There's no shame to be found, you know, as a Phillies fan. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Calm down. As a, as a true Phillies fan for decades now, uh, it's been hard to put hope in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, the last time they won the World Series was in 2008, and then in 2009, they went and lost to that team that shall not be named. <laughs> and then they didn't even make the postseason again until last year. And they went to the World Series and lost, and they lost in the, in the second to last round uh, this year. You put your hope in a good roster and in a good run and a good October, and every, every fan base but one gets less, let down. Every fan base except for one gets let down. But we put our hope in something that's sure, something that's guaranteed, something that's irrevocable. Uh, we shall be saved, it says in verse 9 because of Jesus Christ's life, his righteousness. Uh, and so our hope is not flimsy, um, and it's certainly not impotent. It's confident and expectant because of who our hope is placed in, or in whom our hope is placed. Sorry, I ended a sentence in a preposition there. And it's because of God's love. Look at verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his spirit. There's a down payment on our hope, isn't there? 
Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the down payment of the inheritance that's ours, that eternal glory that we await, the, the final resurrection, the renewal of body, the, the removal of sin and death, all of those things, there's been a down payment already made in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul here in verse 5 says, our hope is so great, it's so good, and it can't let us down because it's based on God's love. And you've got the down payment of that love in your heart already, the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. Let's skip over impact. You can read that on your own. It's not, uh, it's not very difficult to ascertain the meaning. Uh, but it, uh, the big contrast here I, I think is important, and we'll conclude with these uh, four points. Um, in verses 6, uh, 7, and 8, uh, Paul says this, which has caused a lot of confusion, I think, over the years. While we were weak at the right, excuse me, at the right time, uh, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And why does he use two different terms there? Why does he say a righteous person, a law-keeping person, and a good person? I think he's just speaking relatively practically here. Um, none of us particularly care if the person who is uh, uh, sentenced to death is, is a, 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 a a law-abiding person. Uh, another law-abiding person is not going to stand in the place of another law-abiding person. Uh, that doesn't really evoke a great need to sacrifice your own self on behalf of some other person who happens to keep the law, but rather a good person. And the idea there is a kind uh, benefactor, someone who is personally near to you, who you consider worthy. You might die for that person. You see that in war all the time. The, the person on the left or on the right, as we even we recently celebrated Veterans Day uh, yesterday, and we think about the people who uh, gave their lives for people who were close to them, near to them, important to them, not because they always did the right thing, but because they were, in their eyes, a good person. But here, the great contrast that's painted between us and God is that he died for us while we were his enemies. While we were yet sinners. Again, what, what do we have to boast in if God died for us while we were his enemies? Go back uh, again, Jeff, to your question about the Roman Catholic position on justification. Uh, we don't believe that in baptism, grace is infused and original sin is washed away and we're now enabled to receive salvation because of it. If that were the case, we would have something that God was affectionate toward in, inherent in us. But it tells us that the only reason that God died is because he loved us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies. What a great contrast. It's the same contrast that we just spent several minutes talking about regarding reconciliation, isn't it? Therefore, verse 9. Therefore, we have, since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the only promise in these 11 verses. There's a whole lot of truths. There's a whole lot of realities that are ours, peace and grace that we have access and joy and hope and love and reconciliation and all these things that we just looked at. But the singular promise at the core of this text is this. We've been justified and God has promised that we will be saved from his wrath. That's what it comes down to. That's what it boils down to. The reason men and women are afraid of death is because they know that everything they've done is going to be accounted for. Someone once said in, in combat, in war, that going on patrol with a soiled conscience is the worst experience of a person's existence. Um, PTSD, by the way, is not 
produced by getting shot at or even blown up. PTSD is produced by the constant threat of getting shot at or blown up and not having a single moment of relief over the course of a long deployment in a combat zone. That's what causes people that persistent anxiety and fear is knowing that any moment, every step, any noise from any direction, it could happen like that. That's what causes people the fear that they can't overcome after war. Going into that world with a soiled conscience is the most brutal experience a person can have. But going into that world with a clean conscience before God enables men and women to do things that seem super heroic. If you know that Christ's blood has justified you as a Christian, and his promise is that God's wrath has nothing to do with you, you ought to be able to do anything God calls you to in this life. Face any persecution. Face any suffering. Face any diagnosis. Face any life circumstance. Because the God who promises you peace, which is already yours, has taken care of his wrath. So what do you have to be afraid of? I think the Bible says somewhere else, if God is for us, who could be against us, right? Okay, I've gone over by several minutes, which is my habit. Um, Romans 5, 1 through 11, I, I mean it. This is one of, one of the best passages in the Bible. Uh, it contains everything, everything about the gospel in it. And I love the way Phyllis put that. Not only does it contain the gospel of God for us in the work of Jesus Christ, it also contains sort of the mini gospel of our interactions with one another, the opportunity to present the gospel by how we live and to live in light of the gospel in our seasons of difficulty and our trials. We have hope that doesn't put us to shame, right, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me pray, and we'll conclude our time uh, together. And I, I don't know who is teaching next week. Does anybody have the schedule on them? Um, it, I will look it up for us quickly so that way uh, everyone knows what to expect, whether or not you want to come. Uh, I'm just kidding. I don't, oh, why do I have it there? Next week, here we go. Romans 5, part 2, Marshall will be teaching death in Adam, life in Christ. If you have questions about uh, federal headship, um, which was a big topic of conversation among the college and career students this last Sunday night, uh, we sat down together for oh, a good hour, hour and a half, and talked through some questions that they had about justification and so forth and federal headship. Um, the, sort of the question, why is it that we get punished for Adam's sin when we weren't there? Uh, and uh, what does that mean? Uh, what we refer to as the logic of the gospel and the logic of imputation. Marshall's going to unpack all that for us next Sunday, so please come to that. We have a guest preacher here this morning. Pastor Paul Molner is up from Georgia. Many of you know him. He's preached here before. He's been a friend of Christ Covenant Churches for many years, so please uh, stay for the worship service at 11 o'clock. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you from the depths of our hearts for loving us while we were your enemies, for giving us peace and at such a great cost to yourself. The, the contrast is not lost on us, Lord, that our wholeness is a result of Christ's brokenness, that him being opened up and poured out enabled us to be filled up and sealed by your spirit. The images abound and the contrast is stark and the, the joy is all ours as we are able to rejoice in you. We're, we rejoice in the hope that your 
glory will be revealed on the last day. We rejoice in Jesus Christ who has caused us to be reconciled to you even now. And Lord, we ask for continued strength to walk in your ways and to keep your commandments. We ask for continued forgiveness in all of those ways that we fail to do what we ought to do and do those things we shouldn't do. And we ask, Lord, for increased hope. And we ask knowing that the way to hope is through the crucible of suffering, which produces endurance, which gives us character, which grants us increased hope. So would you send trials our way so that we would hope in you more and not in ourselves, not in our physical strength, not in our bank accounts, not in our intellect, not in our church building, not in our government, not in the peace that we think is present in the neighborhood around us, but only in Christ in whom hope is to be found. Would you remove the distractions from our minds as we prepare to go to worship, Lord? Inhabit our praises, we pray, and dwell near to us as you promised to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.